Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 319th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jim Nidzinski. Jim is the co-founder of Motive Wealth Advisors, an independent REA based in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, that oversees $250 million in assets under management for nearly 50 client families. What's unique about Jim, though, is how he and his partner have successfully built a small boutique firm that effectively competes with big wirehouses to attract and retain very high net worth families and have differentiated themselves by developing and implementing a client task management system that goes beyond traditional CRM to really ensure that the advice they are giving actually gets implemented by clients. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Jim and his partner felt they could differentiate themselves from big firms by trying to maximize how many of their financial planning recommendations actually get implemented by clients, and decided to build their firm around Asana, a task and project management tool, instead of a traditional advisor CRM system to ensure that the advice they give is set in motion. We also talk about how Jim leverages relationships he built with accountants, attorneys, and other professionals through cold calls early on in his career to now be able to gain a steady flow of referrals of very high net worth clients, and how through referrals only, Jim and his partner have been able to grow their firm from zero to $250 million in AUM in less than three years since breaking out on their own. We delve further into how Jim and his partner then leverage the back-end support from True Independence so that they can have more time and capacity to help their clients with the most complex financial issues. How Jim has found his move up market to more affluent clients is actually resulting in less fee sensitivity that's led him to increase his fee schedule after the first few years. And why Jim and his partner are intentional about serving no more than 25 clients each as they want to have enough capacity to serve their clients well and continue to do so for the foreseeable future. And we start to listen to the end where Jim shares why, even though he didn't initially set out to own his own firm when he started his career, he's happy that he pursued entrepreneurship as he felt validated with the amount of support he received when he launched and the amount of clients that followed him. Why Jim believes that younger, newer advisors making decisions about where to work should focus on finding a firm based on the character and quality of people they work with rather than just a fancy website, and where they can gain a mentor that would allow them to absorb as much information as possible. And how Jim's perspective on building a client base was impacted by Greg McCune's essentialism that you can be more present and effective in client relationships by being more focused, which has only reinforced Jim's focus on keeping a small client base with whom he can be maximally effective as a financial advisor. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jim Nedzinski. Welcome, Jim Nedzinski, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Oh, thank you, Michael. This is going to be super fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation and, and talking about what I, I think is a really interesting, unique uh, a style and structure of, of of firm that you've built. There, there's this phenomenon. I feel like I'm seeing more often out there these days in the industry that, um, you know, as as more advisors go independent and build and build their own firms, I mean, like this perception has started to crop up of 
one of the great things to do in going and building your own firm is like you can you can you can serve these underserved segments that a lot of traditional firms don't let you serve, particularly because they have minimums, and so then like you can't serve next generation clients or or, or business owners or other folks who don't have liquid assets and lots of growth that has happened in the direction of advisors starting independent firms basically like to serve the clients that the other big traditional firms can't serve and don't serve so that they keep just circling the wagons around very high net worth affluent folks that's sort of been the bread and butter of wirehouses and a lot of large firms for a long time and 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 I feel like it's it's now almost getting to the point of uh a conversation I'm hearing crop up more and more that that's not just hey one of the cool things about being independent is that you can serve non-traditional clients but that if you're independent and going on your own like you you have to serve non-traditional clients because you can't compete for really affluent high value clients if you're if you're a solo on your own like you have to have a big firm and mm-hmm. a big office and a big team and big resources or you just can't be competitive with mm-hmm. more affluent clientele and I, I know you have kind of, to me, bucked this trend in the extreme. You've been in large firms and have gone to a small firm and you've worked with less affluent clients and gotten to very, very affluent clients. And and so I'm just, I'm really excited to talk about this phenomenon of how do you get out there and attract and stay competitive with sort of more affluent, high dollar, high value clients when you're not in a big firm and you can't just put like a you know, globally known name on your business card, uh, and and you're trying to compete and attract high value clients. Like, how does it work in a small firm to attract big clients? Mm. It's a great question. And at this stage, twenty some years in, twenty two years in, there isn't many people that I'm meeting that isn't connected to some relationship that I've had already. Okay. So I think it's in large part the byproduct of years of being in the trenches and doing good work and the classic trajectory of earning referrals without asking them. Yet, you're exactly right. When we begin the conversation, there you can see it and hear the inquiry of how do you do this without hundreds of analysts and all these employees and offices? So I do think it is a surprise to people that we we focus on that space of complexity, and it they wonder how. Um, so uh, it's really interesting. So maybe just to dive into this, uh, why don't you start by just describing for us the advisory firm as it exists today? Like, just paint a picture of the of the firm so we understand what this what this looks like right now. Yeah. So we serve a little less than fifty families. Um, about half of that would be in the space of a of a net worth north of ten million, and the other half would be in that one to ten million dollar total personal net worth. Gets odd when you add business net worth. And there's three of us that are client facing: my friend and partner and co-founder Jay Close, and then the amazing Alexis Lowry. Um, we have behind the scenes. Um, true independence. They serve as a, a back office, plumbing and electrical, uh, you know, really compliance and technology and support that way. And we're really aiming to do everything from fiduciary wealth management up to family office type services for our larger clients. 
and um, attempting to wrap all of the solutions through one phone call. Uh, so I was just going to ask how this adds up in terms of uh, like assets or revenue, however you you measure like what what does this come to overall in terms of breadth of the firm of who you're serving? Yeah, we sure put a bunch of thought into how we would build when we built this. We ultimately ended up with an AUM model. Uh, we wanted the all inclusive experience. I I did not enjoy over the years the what I experienced is of a nickel and dime approach of, well, there's a planning fee for this. And if you take mm-hmm. these extra services more. So we're, we started the year at about 250 million in assets under management. And that's our only source of revenue, of course. So we don't have an additional add-on fee for anything. And then, and then what does that fee schedule look like? I mean, on the one end, like you're, everything's wrapped in. Mm-hmm. At once, which sort of like can can pick up the fee. On the flip side, like you half your clients are north of ten million, which for a lot of firms, like you start getting some breakpoints. So, what it, what does a fee schedule look like for for the folks that you serve? Yeah, we have two. We have the initial one we launched with. We we started with zero dollars. Um, okay. Relationships over time, but zero dollars, and so we we kept a very competitive fee schedule that. Um. Starts out at one percent on the first million and a half, and then drops in half. Goes to half of half of a per, uh, percent on the next three and a half million, and okay. then continues to drop a bit from there. Um, after we realized, oh, this is working. Uh, we we launched. It'll be actually, I think it'll be darn close to three years to the day that this probably airs. And so once we realized, oh, this is working, we made our fee schedule a little bit more competitive and anchored it in our target clientele. So we set and put in writing in the ADV a, a minimum of $5 million for an initial investment. And when we did that, we, we created a new fee schedule for new clients, which is 80 basis points on that first $5 million. So I guess and relative to where you were, 1% on the first one and a half, half a percent on the next three and a half, which... If I'm doing math right, like that's that's basically 65 bips blended rate on the first five million, and you you raised it on new clients to 80 bips on the on the first five million. Yeah, that that sounds right, and 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 then it didn't it doesn't drop as fast, so it's a bit more competitive. If I still look at some of the data out there, we're we're still a little too competitive. Um, we're wondering if that family office space that we're focusing more on. Um, we need what do you mean by being more. too competitive? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I keep finding myself finding it's odd to say we're doing all of this. Um, here's the full list of services. Oh, and we cost about the same as it, what it appears that the average advisor around the country is charging, mm-hmm. uh, even though some of them uh, you you can't get them on the phone. Um, and so I I don't know how premium of a price, but I know we're delivering a premium service. And we should probably re-examine that. Interesting. So, so from your end, like you actually worry that if we go to people and say we do we do all this extra stuff that no one else does, but we charge a more or less average price to what everybody else does, that 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 may be a problem for you. Like if you're if you're too competitive, I guess the implication is if you're too competitive, people won't believe that you really do all this extra stuff because they're going to say, well, you say you do all these other things. But you charge the same as my old firm. My old firm didn't do any of that stuff. So, you know, 
either you're not telling the truth or I was an idiot for choosing thy old firm. And since I don't want to admit I'm an idiot, I'm going to question whether you do all the stuff you say you're doing. So uh, like the the from your end, there, there's a hazard in trying to provide above average services for an average fee from the like the client, the like the client believability end. Yeah, that's right. At launch, uncertain, fearful. Um, hey, come follow us on this crazy venture, uh, people I know. Uh, um, and, and it costs more. <laughs> I, cu- I couldn't. I couldn't get the guts for that. Mm-hmm. But I don't have that issue now. The uh, imposter syndrome's mm-hmm. gone. I am very confident. Okay. Um, and it's not an issue of charging what we can. It's an issue of saying, how do we sustain saying yes to any need that they have? And I think it needs to be at or above the the national average. And I think we're heading in that direction. Well, I'm I'm struck by just how you frame that, that to say like, I I didn't have the guts to charge for that originally. Like it was launched by mm-hmm. firms from scratch. I just need like clients and revenue to get some stuff going. But but now I'm a couple years in, we've got a $250 million asset base. We've got a good client base. Like I don't I don't have to be beholden to that decision now i can i can change it and re-up my fee schedule for who we're working with going forward now i'm confident we've got premium services so i can charge an appropriately premium fee for a premium service that's exactly right and talking about fees is always it feels sensitive it you know it, it's not an issue of greed as much as it is protecting that profit is what enables us to give the time and in my view, that is the rarest of things available to an advisor to have enough time to deliver all this. Um, it's an interesting for me. It, it's it's about protecting the profit to give the time, I guess, like to to serve the clients the way that you want to serve them. Yeah, and that that is what goes back to the question you posed at the beginning, which is how is it that small boutique firms can compete or even be in the same playing field with massive firms. But I find there's a bottleneck at the advisor level. The client can only experience the advice through a person or a team. And that that time is limited. The bottleneck is either the client typically. Right. And if they're very successful, they're very busy. Or it's the advisor. And I know what it feels like to serve 100, 120 families. Or uh, your own work has has shown that the average is probably much higher, 150, 175. Mm-hmm. Some of those big famous yep. firms that are listed, you find yep. those teams, they have 500? Yep. Yeah. You can't remember 500 people's names. I um, have trouble remembering 100 people's names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, th- that Dunbar's number, did, have yeah. you written? I think you've written about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've written about, we've written about Dunbar's number that just the – it's a fascinating thing, like actual research into uh, like brain structure and physiology. That there's a particular part of our brain that's associated with this, like how many different human beings our brains can keep track of, and just like that part of our brain is kind of tied to a capacity of about 150 mm-hmm. uh, people on average. With with the caveat that. You know, some of those are like. I mean, I have a great relationship with clients, but some of those are like my my family and my mm. friends' friends <laughs> as well. So, like, yeah. my my clients can't have all 150 spots that my brain is able to handle. I need I need some of them for for personal friends and family. And so, yes. uh, you know, when you when you drill down to industry benchmarking studies and you just really get down to that clients per 
advisor ratio, an astonishing number of firms, even up and down the size spectrum, if they're really into financial planning and having, I like just having actual relationships with clients, they tend to top out at about 60 to 80 clients per advisor, right? It might be a two-person team with 150, but yeah. two-person team with 150, which means it's 75 per. Uh, yeah. And and the higher your, like the deeper your services get, the the lower the numbers go from there because you just got a sheer time constraint at some point. Yeah. And that position drives things like blog posts that really don't say anything or mass emails or <sighs> all sorts of things that don't move the needle. And we want our work and effort to actually make a difference and not to do things that we have to do because we have to do them in mass. Actually, Jay, my partner said, uh, we're anti-scale and, and not really as a business owner. Obviously, we want to be efficient, but um, we just are pushing back, I guess, on more, 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 more people. How about less people, deeper relationships? But then that does leave us needing to have those people pay a, a pretty good size fee to to make it affordable. So out of curiosity, just in, in this vein and direction for so many of us that sort of inevitably underpriced ourselves early on <laughs> and then came back later and we're like, you probably need to to fix this. And then we 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 fixed the fee schedule going forward to what it should be. Have have you gone back to the existing folks to mm. change and update the fee? Or like have have they managed to grandfather themselves by getting getting <laughs> in early? We're telling ourselves that we're thanking our legacy clients for for being a part of the launch. And so we, we have not, and it's really hard to stomach to think about it. I do think there are a few that have uh, joined us uh, more recently who it'll be appropriate to point out some of the really unique things that we're doing. And um, I think we're wondering if a, a slight rebranding almost or a clarifying of the brand to even put proper language to it that you know, there's investment advice, there's financial planning, you know, there's wealth management, but we really are doing some some services that would normally only find at a multifamily office. And so I think there is an opportunity to go back to some, but right now we're not, we, we don't have the stomach to do it. So I guess more opportunistic, hey, you utilize the services a lot this year and way beyond traditional services. So you know, just want to use that to highlight to you the sheer breadth of what we do. That's a little bit different than other folks and want to let you know that as we continue to do that for you going forward, we've, we've updated our fee schedule a little bit. Yeah. And even as I'm saying it and hearing you reflect it back, I've I've yet to ever find fees to be an issue. Uh, maybe that's partly because in this higher net worth space, I don't experience a tremendous amount of fee pressure. Um, I always found it more in that emerging wealth, that one or $2 million real discerning, um, you know, former do it yourself or space. But um, the higher up I've gone, actually, I find less sensitivity to fees. I, I don't have hundreds and hundreds of data points to support that, but that has been my experience. So, so I guess just tell me more about that. Cause I, I'm, I think for some folks who are listening are, are, are either incredulous or like, you know, have had one or two opportunities to get in front of high net worth clients and 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 couldn't win them because at some point it came down to fees and someone else was doing something different or 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 cheaper. Like, I, I guess is help help me reconcile that. I feel like there's mm-hmm. so much feeling these days that I I if not fee compression because if you really look at the industry, like average fees basically haven't moved for ten plus years since the robo advisors came. 
But I think a lot of people at least are feeling more fee pressure. Like I got to do more to justify my fee. It's certainly a lot harder to show as a premium advisor. Ideally, I would like to be a little bit less than my competition. So it's just yeah. like fees are not a blocking point because I'm not the most expensive on on the block. So it's just, I'm fascinated by this framing of I, I feel less fee pressure as I move up market. Like I guess just how do these conversations show up and, and where did the fee pressure go? Mm-hmm. Well, I sure feel that insecurity about are we doing enough always, but upon reflection, it it just never manifested into an issue. I think one of the advantages is coming from a, a over the years a independent RAA fee practice. The cost of the portfolios are so low. I've seen your work, yeah. you know, the bell curve of cost, and we're at the low cost end. And you know, many of these. Um, what we call them underserved high net worth or th- this target clientele, maybe 10, 20, 30 million in, in personal net worth. They're, they're small for the big Chicago, LA, New York, the coasts and the, the big city firms, the big uh, family offices and private banks. They're, they're on the small side. And yet they're, there's maybe uh they're two or three or four or 5% of a practice of, of a typical advisor. They're not the focus. Um, so we think it's a great space and, and what I'm finding is many of them are coming from warehouses and love my warehouse brethren, but the, the, the overall cost up there is pretty high. At least that's right. what I see. You know, I don't have my finger on the mm. pulse of the industry, but when we get a hold of a portfolio or find out what their fees are, we, wow, we, gosh, we, it's easy. So it's really not an issue. Interesting. So I guess we, well, I guess it's just a good framing. Like we, I find we in the RIA world in particular tend to have a really strong focus on comparing our fees to other RIAs and kind of forget like in practice, we're usually not getting a client from another RIA. That's right. Because like if they're reasonably well served, they're not leaving. And if they're leaving, it's probably not because of the fees in the first place. It's relationship or communication or just bad results or something else. Uh we tend to win business a lot more either from people who haven't had an advisor before and are going the first time. Granted, sometimes they're a little bit more fee sensitive because they've never seen what it costs for advice until they have to hire an advisor for the first time. Or they're coming from a large firm environment that may be one that was more product-based where a lot of the margin was coming from the the underlying products. And when you drill down to what their all-in costs were, the answer is you're actually a lot less expensive in the channel just because you you don't have some of the overhead of broker dealer structures uh pu- pushing up your costs so it it's an interesting framing to me like it's not about whether you're cheaper than the other RAs in the space it's about whether you're cheaper than the wirehouse that the prospect is coming from and the answer is yeah you're winning so much on underlying expense ratios alone that that has not been a problem that's exactly right and upon reflection i don't think i've ever accepted a new client that came from one of our brothers and sisters in the RAA space. I don't think it's ever happened. Uh, we do have one you know, we're beginning to work with now, as I say it, um, a client of one of the, just a giant, giant, famous RAA. And their website humbles mine. We, I, I had inferiority complex. I thought, oh my <laughs> gosh, they, they do everything with one arm behind their back. What? Wait a minute, who are we? Can we do this? And then I had the conversation and it's the classic example. It was all promise and no delivery. It was, sure, we've got 
specialists in this and tax experts in that, and but just nothing ever really got done. And it was mm-hmm. it was all kind of minimum viable delivery for assets under management. And so if it isn't the fees that we can reduce from the big the big firms, uh, warehouse firms, it's what we can actually deliver on the promise at about the same fee that the massive RAA firm was was saying that they would deliver. So either way, it was an increase in value and and then we win. I like how you frame that. They were they were doing the the minimum viable delivery to or to earn their AUM fee. Just an, an interesting way to frame like, you know, there there's a subset of firms that have bundled fees because they really do a lot of stuff for clients and it's just easier to charge it in one bundled AUM fee than as you kind of noted earlier, sort of like nickel and diming them mm-hmm. for lots of different fees for different services. And then there are some firms that charge a remarkably similar fee, but they're not doing maximum delivery to earn their fee. They're doing minimum viable delivery to try to not lose a critical mass of clients. Yeah. Yeah. 95% retention or whatever sounds great, but I I wonder how much of that is just inertia. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a pretty good amount. So, So in the aggregate for this, just kind of getting back to the the core numbers. So, mm. two hundred and fifty million of AUM, less than fifty clients. So, like average clients north of five million, I guess, of investable, which means net worths even even higher than that. Mm-hmm. O- only taking five million plus going forward, mm-hmm. and there and there's three of you. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's you and a partner and someone providing support, client client service management support. Yeah. So I think you said as well, you've got some outsourced support on the back end from true independence. So for those who aren't familiar, like what's, what is true independence? So they're an RIA themselves. They're um, a team of people who there's compliance, technology, some consulting support. They basically supply, I don't know, in my words, like what an independent broker dealer almost would only exclusively for fiduciary RIAs. And they're able to, they actually serve as our chief compliance officer. Um, All the tech questions go to them. So they're invisible to our clients, but enable us to not have to run point on those. I I can't imagine having started the firm without their help um, when we first launched. So uh, structure-wise, like, are you technically... IARs under them as a corporate RIA, or are you still your your own independent RIA, but like you sub out certain services for them? Just how does the structure work? Yeah, we're our own RIA and we hire them via a contract. But when we first started at launch, we did. We started as IARs um, with under them. We started with zero dollars. We were able to step in and work with Fidelity and Schwab as custodians uh, through them. And so we had all the autonomy and freedom we needed and wanted at the time, but enabled us to get right to action. And then about a year after launch, we popped out and became our own RA with their help. Interesting. And, uh, and so I'm presuming that's just part of the intended structure for them in the first place. This wasn't like we were there and then we broke away and to, to use the breakaway kind of mm-hmm. language, like just the whole point was we're like, we're going to use your IAR structure for a while and then we're going to stand up our own firm and be affiliated to you after that. And that's just yeah. part of the structure. 
Yeah, that was the intent from the beginning. And as I understand, they're agnostic whether their teams stay on as IARs or pop out. Interesting. And so I guess the appeal from your end, particularly since you were starting at zero, but transitioning from an, uh, you know, already being in the industry, like wanted to get going quickly, which means uh, appealing to be able to be an IAR under a platform so you can get get going right away. You're registered immediately as soon as you're, uh, as soon as you file with them. You've got access to custodians because they give you access to custodians because they're a bigger platform. And then you get to build your firm over time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And saved time knowing that based on relationships I had that was expecting and hoping that my phone would be ringing for people I knew uh, to join up. And I wouldn't have the time. And I didn't to at the same time be figuring out how to plug in my printer. So it was super helpful to have have them at launch. So, so out of curious, like, just how does this work economically? Like, what do you, what do you pay for this kind of support infrastructure? Yeah, it's a percentage of revenue and it's regressive, much like our fee schedules. Um, starts out double digits and works its way down as assets grow, but it's uh, essentially like hiring a full-time employee. Uh, cost-wise, if you think about it, if it's 10, 12, 15%, somewhere in that range and, and falling. So the question for us is, uh, are we getting more value? Are we saving more time? It certainly has been the case. And we signed a f- contract, multi-year contract. And somewhere in the, our to-do list is to say, if we had to recreate what they're doing, what would it cost? And how much time would it take us to recreate it? Could we recreate it as well? Could we do it better? Like, well, what's the value? Interesting. And, and so, so I guess so like it's that neighborhood, like a 10 to 15% of revenue kind of, kind of framing. Yeah. yeah that's so when right. I think about that, just relative to advisory firms often run something like 30 to 35% in, in overhead for all the different, you know, staff and uh, tech and compliance and other costs. So, you know, they're, they're, they're consuming a portion of that overhead space, but only a portion of that overhead space but they're only providing a portion of the services. Like they're covering compliance, they're covering tech, uh, but you've still got to do your own internal staffing for just client service management. So you've got Alexis doing that mm-hmm. uh, uh, at the at the local level, at the infirm level. Yeah, those numbers bear out almost exactly between office and location and um, our, our expenses, et cetera. You're, you're about exactly right. And the they actually do provide some overflow custodial support. So some prepping of forms if we need it and some help in that way. So there's a little bit of a, a surge relief that they can provide. But our idea was to have anything that the client sees or touches or is touched by uh, be ours. And that if it's behind the scenes and invisible, then then let's leverage the outsourcing. And it's it's been very good for us so far. So then how does this work on the investment side like are are they also doing a outsourced investment management thing is this kind of bu- bundled in with tamp services or is investment management still separate in your own separate in our own in-house jay is our our true wizard uh both of us separately at one point were chairing an investment committee of a of, of a wealth management firm and responsible for a, a billion of client assets 
So we've been in the hot seat of making those decisions and organizing that. Um, Jay takes to that much more naturally and has more experience. So he he runs Point. We work together as an investment committee, he and I, and then we purchase research. So we enjoy work from BCA and Ned Davis. And um, we also, through our alliance with True, have access to a institutional investment consultant. So we have plenty of information and research, but then we build and manage that in-house. Okay. Interesting. So relative to where a lot of other advisory firms outsource where, you know, I feel like the most common structure if you're outsourcing is still a TAMP platform that that tends to be more expensive. Like often they're 30 to 40 basis points and up uh, and, and they're handling all the investment work as well. So they're doing the research, they're doing the model management, they're doing the trading, they're doing the rebalancing, they're doing the paperwork, all that, all those other pieces. So you, you, you pay more, but they handle those layers that you like, you've just sort of parsed that out at a different threshold to say, we'll keep the investment stuff. I can do it internally, but I don't want to do the rest of the compliance tech and some of the other pieces. True independence can do that layer on, on our behalf and we'll, we'll kind of split the overhead allocation. Yes. And it seems rare that these back office support firms are willing to do that. I, I, I imagine the leverage and money is in TAMP services. So you know the fact that True is is happy to deliver us those services um, works out very well, I think, for our, our overall costs and with the clients we're serving. So much of what we're doing in the portfolios is hands-on and custom. And if we had to try to outsource that, it'd be just as much work trying to communicate that to an exterior firm than it is to just do it ourselves. So in that way, it's worked out very well. And then, is there tech that you're using in-house just to like literally manage? portfolios and and trading and do all this yourselves. Yeah, another unique aspect of of True was they were tech agnostic. I don't know if that long term works out well for them because it's tough to be a consultant to uh, many teams yeah. with unique tech structures, but it's been great for us because we were able to to pick. So both Jay and I come from a history with Tamarack in the trading software and reporting. So back to the idea of being able to continue our work and get launched quickly, it made all the sense in the world to to choose Tamarack through the InvestNet ecosystem. So we adopted that and they support it and help us glue the different okay. softwares together. Okay. So how do you, I guess I'm just wondering, like when you're talking to these you know, multi, multi-million dollar clients and up, like how does this get positioned in practice, right? Get back to that dynamic of at least the the perception, I feel like right or wrong, has been uh, you know, really affluent folks just want to see some, I don't know, some size, some mass, some gravitas call it of like the the bulk of the firm to to sort of validate that uh it can handle and serve them well. You're you know, you're structured as this three person firm, but true independence is powering a lot of the back end. Like do you share that with clients? Is that or prospects? Is that part of the conversation, or is it just all about you and Jay and Alexis? And let us tell you about the like truly high touch level of service that we're going to provide, and, and no one asks about the back ends. Like I'm just wondering how this does or does not show up in conversations when you get into the how how big do you need to show you are or not? Mm-hmm. It doesn't come up as much as I thought it would. We introduce it as much as it's needed, and sometimes it doesn't come up at all. Uh, 
um, training I received way early in my career that is still with me today is that the best way, uh, at least in my experience, to convert a prospect to a client is to A, make it about them, not about me. And in so doing, to differentiate the planning they've had done from the planning that they could do under our care. So quickly, as fast as possible, getting past theory and brochure and credentials and experience and, and getting into, well, tell me about your situation and then being able to demonstrate planning strategies and solutions that they either say, oh, I'd heard about that, but my advisors never brought it up. Or that was brought up, but they never did it. Or I've never heard of that at all. Tell me more. What is that? And when we're in that space, that is the meat and my experience of being able to convert them to a client. In the process comes all of the subjective and emotional and relational connection and the answers to, well, how do you manage a firm like this with just three of you? That is so much better answered after they realize that we have technical horsepower that they're not experiencing in their current mm-hmm. situation. So so share a little more in that direction. You said like, you know, the the key is trying to differentiate how planning will be different with us versus what they what they got before or what they got where they are now. So uh they just how do you explain that? How do you show that? Because I feel like a lot of advisory firms, you know, how do you show the value of intangible mm-hmm. financial planning can continues to be a real challenge. There's a lot of like Trust me, after 10, 20, 30 years, you'd be so thankful you've been working with me, which may be like completely true, but is not the best sales pitch. Yeah. So how are, how do you actually get down to differentiating like how it will be different with your firm versus what they got before? In that early part of the conversation, we're asking questions to understand their financial landscape. What do they own, earn, and owe? And as that landscape comes out, going back to my training 20 plus years ago, don't judge, don't jump in with observations, just gather the data. So we build this, this view, oh, maybe at 10 or 20,000 foot. So we're not diving in deep. But the key is to get data on multiple areas, their business, their investments, their insurance, estate, tax, as many areas as we can. And all the while that I'm taking notes and listening and 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 showing empathy and concern and care, I am beginning to develop care for them because I'm hearing their story. I'm finding out, oh, well, tell me about that. And what about your kids and oh, grandkids? And so I'm beginning to get my soul engaged, which is a, a, a divine place. That's, a, that's a, a special zone where I actually care about them and then they feel that. As that's happening, I'm also taking on the far side of my paper a list of every possible planning idea or strategy tied to the data they're sharing me. Oh, that's not titled correctly. Oh, they don't have a solo 401k. I wonder if they've ever heard of the mega backdoor. Who is their trustee? Oh my gosh. And as I'm writing all of that down, I'm beginning to then circle the ones that are high profile, high value, or Mm. are tied into the things they said they cared about. Okay. Because I'm only going to have so much time to share these ideas, so I've, I've got to pick wisely. And what I'm looking for are ideas I can share that are easy to explain and easy to understand, are as irrefutable as possible. So it's great to work in the areas of just fact as opposed to um, a promise of better performance or some kind of just trust me 
uh, sales pitch like you talked about. Right. So easy to explain and understand and then irrefutable. And then, then the magic is it's tied into something they said they cared about. So if I can get three or four, oh gosh, five of those, and then after they've shared everything, come back and say, well, let me just share some observations with you and tell me what you think. And then we have a conversation about these planning ideas. And I'm asking, had you heard of that? Or how does that hit you? Is that the type of thing that's valuable? And in there also then trying to quantify it. So um, if you could put a number on and say, oh, well, gosh, if you did that, you know, that's a couple hundred thousand dollar savings over time, that kind of thing. Hmm. So now I've got what? I've got the emotional connection. I'm showing technical wherewithal they haven't experienced. And they're beginning to experience that I'm tying in those planning strategies to things they care about. That's in a nutshell what I was trained to do when I was 22 and still doing it. And, and I'm curious, where, where does that training come from? Because that's a very I, like good structured process. Yeah. Um, the bulk of that training happened at Sagemark Consulting. It's a, okay. a part of Lincoln Financial, an independent broker dealer. And they were amazing at what they did. And um, it, it was so impactful, though maybe not healthy. It was so intense. We had so much training and there was so much fear. And I was memorizing facts in the shower. My 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 wife would would joke that uh, if the shampoo bottle was a prospect, it would have it would have bought by now. Uh-huh. And uh, but I carry it with me to to this day. And very technical and very um, very people centered. It was great. Yeah, interesting. But I guess so. The crux is just right. Lots of questions at a high level of just the full breadth of their financial situation, the financial landscape as you framed it. With I, I liked like the three buckets. What what, what they own, what they own, what they earn, and what they owe. Is mm-hmm. that the three three pieces? Yeah. yeah. So, lots of questions on that. You start writing down potential ideas that you might highlight to them: solo four one ks, mega backdoor Roths, trustee issues, whatever it is. But you're not saying like you're mm-hmm. scribbling them for yourself. You're not saying any of them yet. You're still just getting more questions, more discussion, more of the picture, scribbling down more ideas. And so then at some point in the latter half of the conversation, it gets to the, so can I share a couple of ideas and observations of mm-hmm. of what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing? And you'll pick your top two or three or four or five of them and start sharing those to say, well, here's one idea. What do you, what do you think? Have you heard of that? Does that hit you? Would that be valuable to you? Because you know, by our math, that would save you like a couple hundred thousand dollars over the next few years, and and you're just trying to go through a couple of those, whatever few you think will be highest highest impact to that prospect to make them say, yeah, if that's what you're bringing to the table, like we we need to continue this conversation. That's exactly right. And those three or four or five items, I ideally want them to be in as many different dimensions of planning as possible mm. to underscore the point that your your experience has been insurance focused or investment focused but as you'll note i mean i'm not necessarily saying this but i'm right. experiencing it that it's across the domain right yeah and and just out of curiosity like how does that how does that meeting end for you like what's the What's the ask or the pitch or the next step at the end? I'm always fascinated by people's sales processes. Mm-hmm. Like how how do you how do you finish that flow? Mm-hmm. 
anti-sale, no hard close. I think it's still recovery from my sales training 20 years ago, where I, 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 it is at your schedule, no rush. It is, it is super gracious, um, very relational. It is, there's no implied close. There's no sign here, press hard. It is very soft. What I'm typically closing for is the next meeting, which in these situations is often more work because there isn't typically a yes on anything of this size in one one meeting in a scratch pad uh, of yellow pad notes. It's going to be, can you share some of the documents? Can you share some of the information we're going to do at no cost an initial analysis? And we'll share in more detail what we're finding when we see your information, really expounding on the types of things that we shared during the meeting just now. So we're closing to gather that information and have that second meeting. And then what and then what comes in the second meeting? Like are you are you doing like a full-on financial plan? Uh how how far do you go with this? Yeah, subjective um it tend to to bring a bazooka when a handgun's only needed. That's the tendency because I don't want to come underprepared. But it's a function of how much willing d- data they're willing to share. And so I don't want to ask for everything. And then that's a huge project. They never get around to it. So I want to make right. it easy. Yeah. So it's it's a feeling out. How, how eager are they to share information? How easy and accessible is it to get? I'll take anything and everything they'll give us from trust documents, to insurance policies, to all the investment statements. What they give me is very helpful as well, because it helps me understand what they're, what they're concerned about, or what they care about. So if the first document they post to the portal or put bring into the office is some state planning documents, okay, that tells me that really is well, a concern. It's a, a good point. Yeah. And if if the first document, when you say, can you share more information, if the first thing that shows up is wills and trusts, apparently that's what's bothering them. If the first thing that shows up is some business document, like apparently that's what's nagging at them deep down. If what shows up is a statement, then they might be really unhappy with something in their investment portfolio. <laughs> Precisely. And so then based on how much they give us an information, it's how much work we're going to do. It's pretty rare that we're getting into financial modeling at that point because it's not even really helpful. I think that it's going to be concept and impact. And all along the way, is is this the kind of planning you're looking for? Is this the results that would be meaningful to you? Does this align with what you wish you had been receiving? And trying to get yeses, trying to understand what's important to them and and all along, you know, this isn't a technical sale and it's not a relational sale. It's not a sale. It's, it's, I've got to step into actually caring. And then I forget about that. I'm trying to close a, a, a deal. It's, it just becomes genuine or yet if it's all relational and handshakes and let's go golfing, then I don't think that's effective either. Cause that's not why they're there. They're not here for a friendship initially. No, they want impact. So it's got to be a dynamic marriage of highly technical, like we're engineers, and highly relational. And it's that combination. And I think it's that's the magic. So so where did these prospects come from that you know you're a you're a three-person firm with a five million dollar minimum, two hundred and fifty million under management after I think you said like you just got going about three years ago. Lots of prior industry experience, but like stood up the firm three years ago and at 250 million so quickly. So where do these very affluent uh, 
uh, already working with some other advisor that they happen to be unhappy with prospects come from? The real, real answer goes back to very unaffluent clients 20 years ago from cold calls. That's the real answer because it's that in the trenches, pounding out on the phones, that is the domino snowball effect that led to relationships with attorneys and accountants and other people. And that led to a relationship who led to a relationship and eventually to the point where it's all referral. It's all, oh yeah, I know you and so-and-so speaks highly of you and we should talk. And at this point, they're, we're anti-marketing. We're actually trying to a little bit be like that that hip new restaurant that you and I don't know about, Michael, right. that doesn't even have a sign. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You just have to know where in the alley and what the knock on the door is. Um, we, we put the sign up on our, on our, uh, for our name on our building, on our office. And we intentionally didn't put wealth advisors under. So it just says motive. It doesn't say motive wealth advisors. Mm. And, uh, I think I deactivated our Facebook account some time ago. Um, just, you know, why spend the time when it's referral based? It's, it's not that we're, we've arrived or this is just so amazing. It's just, we're not trying to onboard a ton of people and it's all referral. Um, so it, it's purely relationships. So referrals where like from existing clients, from primarily attorneys and accountants, from others, like just w- who's referring? Yeah, primarily existing clients. So when we launched, true, true, I didn't make one outbound call. It was clients that I'd served along the way over the years, um, deduced you know, he, he, he started his own firm. I'm going to call him and we welcomed him into the family. And that was the big gamble. He says, will that phone ring from those years of working? And so how did those clients come to be? It was one who referred the next who referred the next. And, and now this second layer of clients here in years two and three, uh, of motive have been referrals from them. Um, a hundred percent. Yeah. So mostly clients and some, some advisors. And, and do you, ask for referrals like are you a you know we'll ask for referrals uh uh kind of firm or like they they just do it years ago during the young and building phases i was very intentional and i had a whole system and a whole process where i rem- dropped notes and hints right from the beginning and all of those uh, we, we feels- get we get paid two ways oh michael don't do we have to admit that we said that <sighs> I get paid in two ways. The first is yes, yes. <laughs> the business that you do with me and the compensation I receive in my firm. And the second is by being introduced to other people in a similar situation to yours that I can help. I'm cringing. I'm cringing. <laughs> I never went so far as to put, you know, don't keep me a secret on the bottom of the email. Oh, uh, literally had that at one prior firm. Uh, yep. 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 Fair enough. And uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know how that would work today. Well, I know how that would work today, but I don't know how the level of intentionality would work. Mm-hmm. But the point is, um, culture, contextual, uh, intentionality, absolutely. And I would be doing it if I were trying to build today. But now we're not. We're letting the work earn the referral. And there's something about um, not. We're not. We don't smell hungry. Uh, that just makes mm. people feel confident to to support us. Uh, but you know what? Uh, I I have some intentionality of asking a couple clients who are in a position where I think it would be natural to say, 
um, I don't even have the language for it because I haven't done it in years, but I would come up with the language for how to ask because I think it would make sense in the, in the context uh, given their life situation uh, to ask who they knew. So, all right. So then I've, I've got to ask because you know, there are a lot of advisors out there that work really hard for their clients, presumably do some pretty reasonably good work. Uh, have a similar philosophy that you know we like we shouldn't need to ask for referrals. Uh, you know, clients should see the great work that we're doing and the labor that we're we're engaged in on their behalf and want to refer us. Um, they're not getting five plus million dollar referrals on a regular basis and have not gathered two hundred and fifty million dollars in three years. So, like, what are you doing <laughs> that makes these multi multi million dollar referrals appear for you that? just in practice don't appear for almost any other advisors? I don't have a great pithy answer, but a few ingredients I think go into the mix is never being so low. Uh, when I was real young, I was always doing, as we called it back then, joint work. I was always teamed up with an older, senior, wiser, mm. better, better advisor. And it certainly expedited technical expertise and I got to see how they said things that made the client cringe or made them warm up. And it was just pure reps of being able to observe and say, oh, I like that. I'm going to adopt that. Oof, I'll never do it that way. And then as I became the intermediate advisor, um, I started teaming up with others to share the work. And then as I became, quote unquote, the senior advisor, um, start to have some gray in the beard. Um, Jay and I are so complimentary. You know, it's like the EOS system where there's a visionary and and and, uh, mm -hmm. and the implementer, yep, uh, integrator, I should say, um, or the yin and the yang. And so, being able to really step into strengths and to team up with people. So, I would think one key thing is a, is a team approach and not being solo. And so, whether it was me as the the junior learner or me as the, the teammate with Jay, um, I think there's something magical there when, when it's complimentary. And it's not two engineers or two salespeople, but, but, but complimentary. I think that's one piece. Well, I, I, I mean, I hear you on that end and, and the virtue of teams. But again, like I see a lot of advisors with multi-person teams and you know, dividing the work and sharing the work and more, more hands to do more work for clients. But you know, they're, they're not getting giant client referrals <laughs> wish we were but like i don't see a lot that are getting the kind of referrals and referral flow that you're talking about so like what's what's triggering people to you know voluntarily just up and say like you you got to work with jim and and they're multi-million dollar people saying that's multi-million dollar people well, I would say two things, I suppose. One is, sounds like a platitude because everyone says it on the brochure, but I think it might it might be real in our case where we really have in our project and task management system, every possible task, planning strategy, you know, big and sophisticated, right on down to the most mundane for the client and we're championing that list and not just advising, giving a leather bound book, but owning to get the task done as if it were our own. And so there's movement, there's progress, things get done, phone calls get followed up on. Uh, 
you know, it isn't five years in a row of, well, I thought you were going to update your trust. I, I, I put that in the three ring binder. You didn't, you didn't do it. It's we're calling the attorney, uh, scheduling the meeting, uh, being at the meeting, it gets done. So I think some of it is just blocking and tackling of actually moving the ball so that a client can say in their head, oh, if something needs to get done, Motive's going to do it. They'll get it done. I, I, it's not glamorous, but isn't that what matters? Is is action yeah. taken? It isn't. Is the advice good? And it sure as heck isn't. Is it shiny and pretty? Um, that may may be good for prospects, but it's not good for clients. Right. And good clients refer good prospects. So why not just focus all the energy on the stuff getting done? Um, the other piece of it is, and this also sounds like a platitude, but you know the difference between. Um, actually feeling, oof, I'm going to use the word, I, I can't not, actually feeling love for someone. I don't mean the emotion. I mean, just truly wanting what's best for them. And I think that that's a choice initially and then becomes a real thing over time. I don't, I don't think I sit around and wait to actually care. I act in a way that is caring and that over time births genuine care in me. And so mm-hmm that place is almost a spiritual place of really having a relationship. I, I, I called, well, actually it was the last thing I did before you and I got on the phone is I, I was, I, I called a, a client we serve today was their, um, had their mother been alive would have been their mother's 95th birthday. And I know that that was a big loss for her. So we called and and we talked and we actually didn't talk about anything financial. And that's not common because most clients we serve have a lot of financial things to deal with, but yeah. that's all we talked about. And it wasn't a technique, Michael. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah it, it, it may have, maybe at first, because at first we don't know each other. We don't know people, but once, once right. we get to know them, it can birth a genuine care. So I think it's some combination of deep relationship and actually doing the things I need to do to get my own heart to actually care. And marrying that with highly technical, well, I should say technical that matches the client situation, a level of technical prowess, and then marrying that with David Allen getting things done, level productivity, so that nothing falls through the cracks. That's the that's the three legged stool. Nothing special. And so, just how are you doing all the like tracking? Nothing falls through the cracks at the level of like make sure I touch base with the client who's mother died, but would have been 95 today. Uh, I mean, are you just like CRM ninjas in mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. able to manage all this in a CRM system? How does this get, how does, how does getting things done get done? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went all in on a project management software. Uh, we use a software called Asana, A-S-A-N-A. It's not actually for financial advisors. Okay. Where that comes from is, uh, yeah, I am a a David Allen getting things done disciple. And in my own personal life, many years ago, I began using one of those task managers. You know, there's Trello and what was it? Remember the milk was an original one? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I've used Todoist um, and it changed my personal life uh, following David Allen and then using a software to do it. And it's only natural to bring that over to the business, those same concepts. But CRMs, in my experience, are woefully inadequate. They're really good for large firms who need to say, I need to find all left-handed Polish 65-year-olds who <laughs> you know, have an annuity. And so you can bring that up and then you can mail merge. And I don't need to mail merge. I don't need to find those 
those client characteristics. Um, I need to manage tasks and the task management piece right. in the workflows always seems tertiary at best. Um, so why not use a software that is absolutely designed for that? So Asana was our choice and we're all in. So do you like literally not use a CRM system at all? Like you live in Asana or is there still a, a like a complimentary CRM alongside? Yeah, we use Wealthbox as a Rolodex. Um, we know it's also capturing emails, though we use Smarsh to actually record all of those those emails. So Wealthbox is there. At this point, it it is for our social security numbers and birth dates and anniversaries and, and the official single point of truth for client contact information. But we do not use it for one single process. Interesting. So then help me understand more of just what is... What does Asana look like for you in practice? I really describe your task management system as kind of a strange thing to say, but just, (laughs) uh, I I mean, just how do you manage this? How do you organize this? Like Mm -hmm. projects or structures, like just how, how does, how does it work managing a firm and it's, and it's workflows, not through the CRM, but through Asana. Mm -hmm. Here's where we should magically push a button and turn this into a webinar, but yes, ideally. Yeah. So yeah. Let, me turn, let me turn on the screen share now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yep. shoot. I didn't have pants on yeah. my bad. I thought this was a phone call. Um, uh, it would be worth your listeners, uh, tuning into the, uh, financial planning summit, the value summit that you hosted recently, because it, I was really surprised to see that Jake, yeah. Jake uh, Northrup. Yeah. Yeah. Had a presentation on the same concept. That's the first time I've heard anyone else doing this. Um, so there's some visuals there and he had some good things to say. Um, yeah, he, he does a version of, of, uh, uh, of this where he's doing super intensive task management for clients using, a a, a task manager. He uses MindMeister in, in, instead of Asana or Trello. But so his structure is every client has a, like has a board, has a, like a project they're shared into that project. So the client has tasks, the firm has tasks of what they're doing on behalf of the client, uh, and, and they just end out with like a big old list of projects for all the different clients and the tasks going back and forth for each of those clients, and then some like roll-up summary boards so they can keep track of things across clients. Are, are you in a similar structure where like every, every client has a little project in Asana and then all the tasks pertaining to that client live there? That's correct. There's a, a project for every client and every area of planning from philanthropy to insurance and so on has a section. And every section then has projects and every project has tasks. And what we're trying to accomplish is three things. One, it's first of all, behind the scenes, what do I need to do by when and for whom? And there's ways to share those tasks among the team, reminders. It's all organized and findable instantly and searchable via my mobile device or the computer. The The second thing it's serving as is the facts about their financial situation. So we're trying to marry information with activity. And so traditionally, there might be a, a task that says a retitle such and such account to their living trust. Well, the living trust 
the facts about that have been read and analyzed and are summarized in the project heading. So right there on that same page is all the facts. Rather than that being stored or saved on some Word document buried somewhere in a network drive. So the assumptions and the facts about any asset they own. So if it's an asset or an income source, it exists in Asana as reference information. So now our activity, our tasks are right next to our information. It makes us so much quicker. We don't have to say, oh, who's the trustee of that irrevocable trust? Or wait, what, what, what kind of account is that? Or what kind of insurance policy? We read it once, we analyze it once, and the information gets put there, almost like a, um, an assumptions page. Okay. Then the third thing is, um, what's great about Asana is we can create a second parallel project that becomes client facing. And we call it a dashboard. I think Jake calls it the same thing, funny. Now, the what I show a client on the screen in the conference room or over a Zoom isn't double work. I don't have to take what I did and then regurgitate it and edit it and format it and, and print it, which is immediately out of sync with real time because we're having a conversation, things are happening so quick. Rather than having Polaroid photos, why don't I have a live feed? So now, whatever I'm doing in my project is happening simultaneously in the client-facing project. Now, at this phase, they're not getting access to it digitally like Jake's clients. We're, we're working toward that. But I don't ever have to create an agenda. It's built in real time. A, a, a client literally called yesterday, and I just bring up their dashboard because it's the curated summary of anything and everything that's an open loop in their world which is just a small collection of the open tasks that exist on my project for them that they don't see. But it's instant. It's immediate. As soon as the beneficiary is updated in the task and it's hit complete, well, that's now showing in the proper place on their project dashboard. Be so, because again, that's just kind of configuration of mm -hmm. you know what tasks are tagged to which projects and which columns mm -hmm. they show up in, which is all super configurable and tools like Asana. So you, you've you've got that framework built out. So in real time, you're just managing tasks as tasks and they get re reported out or column moved or shown where they're supposed to be because you did that configuration. That's precisely right. And it's a key to our efficiency to be boutique because we're eliminating so much duplicate work. And um, it, it's so fast. And did I hear you say as well that you've got different templates for different planning strategies? So at some point, like, uh, you know, update and fund the client's revocable living trust has a task with 17 different subtasks of all the different follow-on items you have to do because you've done this before for other clients. And so now you 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 just queue it up for the next client and uh, and off you go. Yeah. And those templates exist at two levels and we're building them both over time. One of them is what you said, it's procedural. So uh, we all know a backdoor Roth, but what are those steps? Well, we can build a template and then just apply that to a client when needed. The other form of template is the actual technical strategy itself. So uh, as we learn little facts about the $1,000 HSA contribution that the second spouse can make um, and the rules around that, oh, shoot, I didn't know that. That goes in the health savings account strategy template, which is in Asana. So we're building this massive library 
almost like the old Ross Levin wealth management index of yeah yeah of planning strategies that we keep live and what's so efficient about that is we just duplicate that over into the client project when when it's applicable so we have this Walmart uh, Costco uh, shopping mall of planning strategies we go to that our thoughts our comments links to articles is right there and then that just instantly can be a part now of the deliverable to the client and so are are you like is the client interfacing with this like do they log into asana and have tasks assigned to them of like make sure you you know call your attorney to get that meeting scheduled like do they get tasks and interface with this as well or is this ultimately still you're using this to handle all your tasks, but it's not their thing? Yeah, the, the latter. We're using it for our tasks. We're using their dashboard project in client meetings to communicate, but we haven't yet activated the idea for, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Client, here's your login to your Asana. I dream of the client portal having a tile that's their task inbox. So they double click on it and it single signs them on into Asana and we're engaging in that way in real time. Jake, as you mentioned, is doing a version of that. Yeah. I think it's overwhelming for many advisors to think of tackling a software like this and it seems so out of the box, but I'm pretty convinced that CRM isn't designed for most RIAs. It's, um, for, for task management and that this ultimately is more efficient. Uh, I, we haven't gotten to the step of in having clients engage with it, but I really want to. And so out of curiosity, I guess just like nerdy technical and like, are there integrations between Asana and Wealthbox? Do you even want or need integrations or is that a moot point? Like I'm just, I'm so many of us I know are loath to live in two systems with duplicate information. So I'm just trying to process like, mm-hmm. does data move back and forth? Does it need to move back and forth? How integrated or redundant is this? Yeah, we started to ask, well, what data do we need where and why? So we've been working with compliance to understand what can go in Asana and like programs and what shouldn't. So we're keeping you know, things like social security and full account numbers out of there. And we're not using it as a document management system uh, through True. We have a we have that separately. So the actual trust document itself or the account statement is not in Asana. But what's beautiful is everything can hyperlink. So we we can hyperlink from Asana out to Wealthbox or to a document in a management system, etc. And that's secure and and works real well. But ultimately, what needs to be there? Um, we think that it's our reference for our projects and tasks and client preferences, and and that serves that purpose. What does need to be in a CRM? So no, we have no integration, and I don't, I don't see the need for it. Interesting. I, I am noting though, like you're, it seems like you're pretty specific to not store a lot of private client information in Asana. Like is is that an expediency efficiency thing or is that a like compliance concerns about whether Asana is secure enough to hold social security numbers and trust documents? Yeah, it's been um, compliance so far. However, uh, we have an open task to explore just how secure Asana can be. And you can now be HIPAA compliant in Asana. So the, the degree of 
privacy and security yeah. and I mean it two factor and and they're they're intense so if you had a uh, an all out brawl on security between a wealth box or um any type of CRM and Asana, I don't, I don't know who would win. Our tech, yeah. you know, consultant there at, at True is comfortable with with how we're using it. So over time, I expect that we'll find that oh gosh, well this is just as secure or more. So we'll, why is it okay to have a yeah. social security number in CRM and not in there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look, I, I I get compliance wanting to do their thing and and being wary, but to me, just you know, having lived like well. You know, advisors have one set of compliance rules. Uh, you know, we deal with this through advice pay. There's a whole separate set of security rules around credit card information and PCI compliance. Like that's a whole other domain. Health services has its own thing around HIPAA, but like HIPAA is freaking robust. Like I just died mm-hmm. to me to hear that. Like if Asana can figure out HIPAA compliance, like RIA compliance should not be a problem. Like the HIPAA, HIPAA rules are way more stringent than uh, than what RIAs typically go through. So I'm sure there's some configuration stuff, right? Two factor authentication and the rest. But I just my my gut is if Asana has figured out HIPAA, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out the SEC. Like our <laughs> our cybersecurity requirements are just not not for the average RIA where HIPAA already is. Yeah, and so if that can get sorted out, and I think there are ways that it clients can have access digitally to their project where we're sharing yeah. and communicating, I think that can be navigated. That's that's where we're heading, and I know there's some resistance to oh yet another login, but oh, how many? You know, I think it's okay. I th- I think it can be navigated, and I I dream of some custom integration someday, and maybe we'll be able to tackle that. It does strike me though that just when you get back to um you know, the sort of the, the question of, so why do clients ultimately refer you in ways that other advisors don't necessarily get referred? To me, there there is an interesting power to, you would articulate, well, like, it's one thing to to give the recommendations, like to to have the smarts, to have the knowledge, to, to give the true, good, right, best advice that nobody had ever told them before. But at the end of the day, like the true question comes down to, did they actually take the action? Like, did they do the thing? Did they implement the the recommendation? And, you know, it's, it's I've long wondered if we will reach a point in the coming years where at some point advisory firms don't just look at things like retention rates of clients or like the breadth or depth of advice. You get to metrics like the percentage of recommendations that clients actually implemented in six to 12 months. Right. right. And, and you start measuring on that basis. And I don't have any data to prove it, but I have a very, very strong suspicion that when you drill down to what firms drive referrals, like or like get referrals, get inbound referrals, it's a lot more about that metric than almost any of the others. Because just when clients at the end of the day can sit down and and, and look back and see like, wow, I did this and that and that and that. And like all these things have been done. And I literally feel like I'm in a better financial place because I can see the things that got done. And I know deep down, I never would have gotten them done without my financial advisor because I, I'm a human being that procrastinates into all the things that <laughs> clients do or don't do that makes them show up in our office needing help in the first place. Uh, that you know, if you look at if you look at follow through rates like that, like 
what percentage of your recommendations get implemented and what steps do you take as a firm to help make sure that clients do that. It's the clients that actually see the outcomes of that work yes. that refer more. And just to me, like the striking thing in the context of what you're framing up, if you want to make that happen scalably as an advisory firm, that might not happen in your CRM because it's not actually tasky enough yeah. to help clients get the task done versus Asana, you know, Jake using MindMeister. I mean, I know yeah. there's even some standalone apps like Nudge in the industry that's trying to do a version of this as well. And we just we historically have spent no time really talking about and focused on the follow-through parts uh, of this beyond the ones that we get paid for, which is like, did the account open and the assets move? Yeah. Is my job done? Can I check the task off when I've told them? Or does that task need to have a reminder to me mm-hmm. with a tag that says verify and it pops up in three months that, that contacts them and says, what's the status? I think that latter part is where the rubber meets the road for advice becoming action. Right. And it and it requires systems and it requires technology right. and intentionality and a focus on action, not on advice. So then in that context, I, I, I guess my other question is for the firm overall, like where is this going and growing for you? Like it's it's you and Jay and Alexis and support. True independence, I'm presuming, will you know uh, they'll go along with you on this ride as large as you want to be. Just just keep <laughs> keep growing, and they'll they'll provide their support services for you know a, a percentage of what it grows to. So like scalability is pretty straightforward on their end. But I guess I'm I'm really curious on your end because you got such this like high touch, tasky oriented. We do the work in all the follow through steps framework. Uh, I'm I'm really curious. Like where does this grow for you? Is there some capacity on how many clients you and Jay can handle before it stops? When you get there, does it stop or do you try to find another you or Jay? Like, how does how does growth play out for you guys? We're pretty focused on what we've said is 25 families per founder. So a 25 to one ratio. And, uh, and that is tied into that $10 million plus space. Okay. So, so at this point, we don't say, well, then let's replicate that and have another team and another team. Um, we're more focused on enjoying the work, enjoying each other, enjoying the clients, and not just growing to have a bigger firm. The question is, how do we have capacity for that that next, what I would think would be 25 families? Yeah. Um, and part of that answer is, how do we care for those without abandoning them who are amazing people and amazing clients that aren't in that family office type services space that how, how do we do that? And we're, we're solving that in real time. I don't, I don't have that answer. I, I, I can't, I know that a cold consultant might say, sell them or, or, or set them free. Um, you know, one in four out. Um, we're just not wired that way. And it doesn't I usually right. like just tell people go one, one on two off one on four offs kind of, kind of brutal, but sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, we joke, we don't want to be that, immature junior high boyfriend who just was mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, hoping that he'd get broken up with. That's not right either. So we want to care for them and, and but, do it right. But how? But that means that, so the framing for you is we don't necessarily want to ever be more than 50 families for you and Jay, and it's only going to be you and Jay. The question is just, 
if we continue to get more new clients coming to us, can we keep taking on bigger clients and letting go of smaller clients? And then as we do that, how do we do that in like an appropriate way that honors them? But like, That's- is that the framework? Like, it's not going to be more than 50. It can grow because the 50 may write bigger checks and be be bigger yeah. clients, but you're not trying to grow by getting more than 50. You're trying to grow by having the 50 be a higher average. Yeah. And the reason is Jay and I can't help ourselves. We, we, we end up providing this kind of advice and service and detail regardless of how many zeros are there. And it's more of a self-preservation rather than fighting our wiring, just give into it because not everybody has that. And so we should do our unique good for the people for whom it's a fit, but how to honor those other clients. And We'll serve them till the ends of our days. Or we've been talking lately about, okay, I think there needs to be some room on the team maybe for a real like-minded partner or two who can come in and be responsible. And so maybe we actually end up with two services, a wealth management deliverable in the $1 to $10 million space and and a wealth management and family office deliverable, uh, 10 and above. So that's kind of our working theory now. But um we, we said we would always evolve the firm to fit our people as a, that's kind of a small giants uh, mm. takeaway I had was people first, people, people, people. And that, that really does mean if we've got great people or no great people, well, come, let's work together. Now, now what should we do now that we're together? How does, how does the firm evolve that we've got a, another team member in the mix who's, who's so unique and, and good. So it's a, it's, it's a going to be a bit flexible as we define who, who joins us. Who, who is that going to be? Interesting. But I, I, it struck me how you frame that, that we're going to keep providing this level of service no matter the assets because that's just how we're wired. So, so we may as well try to do it for people who are a fit. Like, as I view it, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to do very, very high value work no matter what. So I may as well find people who are actually going to pay me fairly for it because I don't yeah. know how to do less work for small clients. So I may as well just do this level of work for whoever will pay the most effectively for it. And I guess like the market speaks for itself at that point. It's got very, very pure, pure capitalist, <laughs> find the market clearing rate phenomenon. Yes. Yes. That's well articulated. So as you've gone down this road, like what surprised you the most about just building this advisory business? I didn't think I'd end up owning a firm. Generally was a part of a team, not building one. Um, so it was a surprise to even be here, I would say. Um, I would say it's also a surprise, a great surprise that it worked, <laughs> that take the risk and it's almost healthy. Everyone should almost do it because it was a validation of what was, I think a lot of imposter syndrome disappeared when people said, Hey, I want to be with you. I mm. want to follow you. I know you're making a, a different change and I, I choose you. And that was so validating. Am I doing a good enough job? It's like they said that you were to the degree that they would follow me on the launch of my own firm. So I was surprised that people were uh, advocates and that it felt so good and uh, that I ended up here. Um, that's a big surprise. So then help me understand, like, I just how did you go from, I was always part of teams and never thought I would end up owning a firm to, and and then I launched my own firm. Like, how, how did you, how did you end out in the... <laughs> I'm a business owner founder scenario. <laughs> I think I've discovered about myself that I would much rather deal with big problems I created than small problems other people created for me. Um, <laughs> okay. 
I don't, I don't, I, I, um, I realized I'm much happier, um, in the entrepreneurial, oh my gosh, this is hard. What are we going to do? Is this going to work? Let's figure it out and do it. And less so, um, being stuck without options or having to deal with politics or other people's priorities. It was a large part of the reason we named it Motive was we wanted to completely align what we did on a daily basis with our drivers, our our values. And I found that whatever challenges we face, if I'm doing that, are much smaller emotionally than when I'm dealing with challenges based on someone else's motives or approach uh, or priorities or focus, whatever. So it was it was about saying, oh, that hurts less. Those kinds of pains problems hurt less. And um, but I I didn't I'm, I'm a people person, Michael. So at the end of the day, I like teams. I like people. I like engagement. But yeah, I think I wanted to be the one solving the problems and making the decisions on where to go and how. Was there a particular moment that was a it's like a transition moment or a like. Okay, I've realized now I'm going to have to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I it feels like I was put in a stream and the current carried me. I I don't recall making a decision. It was more of a it actually started with a what if I had to? What if I had to do this on my own? Hmm. What would I do and how would I do it? It was actually a fact finding um almost like a a fire drill. And circumstances began to accumulate where uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I have this fire drill because this seems to now be the right thing. And in that process of gathering information, you know, how would I do it? What what would it look like to start my own firm? In that process, my heart began to change. And it wasn't just about facts. And uh, once my heart caught up with what my mind had learned, it was it was time. So, what was the low point on this journey for you? Mm. There were some that that 3 a.m. I'm still working moment. Is this is this ever going to end? Um, did I did I build something that is going to crush me? Can I do this? I never wanted a client to experience me dropping the ball, uh, so I paid the price. Um, that's that's been lifting now, and we have a healthier pace. But going from zero to that many families at that level of work over a very short period of time yeah. was, was was pretty intense. Um, I actually had a wise mentor to me say, you're not going to be able to do this forever. You know, he said, you're, you're going to run out of juice to be auditing a tax return and then a irrevocable trust and then a rebalance from growth to value all in the same day. You're, you're, you're going to need a healthier pace and that's good counsel. So I think some of the, the lowest moments was, was worrying about that. And I would say the other was those moments of, um, oh, just fear. Will will people will will people listen and follow me, and and believe in me? And then I was so relieved to see that they did. So, three a.m. moments and and the fear of of it not working. So what what shifted that you're actually feeling like you're getting a little bit more of a lift or 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 breather now? It We're sounds like organized. like it's been you and Jay yeah. all along. So it's not like yeah. Well, I was getting buried and then I added a partner. Yeah. Alexis has been, she is such an amazing addition to the team. She's so high powered. And I also think we were hesitant to want to expand the team because Jay and I struggle with doing things a certain way in our way. 
So Alexis is a big part of it. It's also just beginning to get organized in Asana as opposed to being in launch mode like we were for those first two years. And I'm confident as we're getting referrals based on the work we've been doing from new people um, that it's working, that we've got the right deliverable. Now we just need to get more efficient and add the right team members slowly as we add on new clients. So it hope, it's always hope, Michael. It's hope that yeah. we're on the right track well, and that the right people make the difference within the team. Yeah. Well, I, I think you make an interesting point, though, about the how the business transitions that when you get to a point where the referrals are are picking up and flowing, it's an indicator that like you've got the right offering, you've got the right deliverable, which means and particular challenge, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurial folks, like you don't have to keep making new things to do to be valuable to your clients. Like if they're retaining and they're referring at a really good rate, like you're there. Like you don't have to keep making new things take a pause now and figure out how to get more efficient at the things you're already doing because you're doing on the model repeating basis and systematizing. And just there's a there's a shift to that that I see some advisors, particularly in the entrepreneurial, and they struggle with. Like they they so like making the next new thing to show value to the clients that they kind of miss at some point. Like you might actually be there where you don't have to make the next new thing. You can just go back and make the current thing a little a little more efficient so it's easier to do what you're already doing. Mm, which then leads for more breathing room, for more presence, right. for more of that that special care, that special uh, connection and relationship and presence with the client, and 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 now that's even that's even stickier glue if you want to talk about it that way than adding the new shiny thing. Right, mm-hmm. that's a good point. So, what do you know now about the advisory business? You wish you could go back and tell you like twenty years ago when you were first getting started in the industry. Mm. I would say to the younger self to read a book that hadn't been written yet. That was uh, Essentialism by Greg McEwen. That concept, mm. I think I, I chased everything and worked inefficiently and, and I worried mm. about everything and you know, made sure the alignment and the font and every punctuation and had all of these things that were just not in alignment with what really mattered. Um, the motive was good. Hey, I want to help the client. I want to do do my best, but it was it was misplaced. It was so inefficient, mm-hmm. and I could have saved myself a whole lot of energy and time and been more present for people. Just ultimately, what it's about is relationship, and could have been more present doing what was more effective. So if I could somehow go and say, hey, here's what matters. Here's where you should spend your time and energy. It'd be that. Um, there was a lot of three a.m. mornings working hard over all nighters trying to get ready for that client presentation and. Um, so much of that is unnecessary and actually is counterproductive. So I would tell myself that, take it easy, focus on what matters. And here's what matters. It's, it's, uh, it's people and the key planning deliverables that really move the needle for them. And what are the key planning deliverables that really move the needle? Mm, that's the beauty, right? What is it for each client? And that's what's, what's different. I, I think I had a tendency to treat uh, whether it's uh, 72% or 68% equities in their 401k, the same as they're really worried about their adult daughter. And how does the planning address that? Um, relax on the, the 4% deviation from target and and spend the time on what matters. And, and by the way, it doesn't have to look great. You don't have to have a, 
a beautiful presentation with the animated PowerPoint, um, it's okay if it's on a whiteboard because that's it, it's the advice and it's the presence and the relationship and it's tuning into what's important to them. And I think I focused a lot on trying to make everything look good and be all, all perfect. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think there's been an emphasis on giving the client an experience like like we're some retail store or a movie theater. And I, I get that and I understand that. But I think at times for me, that came at the cost of presence and focus on what really mattered. I, I'm not too much. Hmm. I'm being a little reflective, but I don't know. I don't know that we really need to emphasize so much in experience. I don't need to host a client event and, and, uh, if I'm really present and really care and really listen and then give advice and then help them implement and do that over and over, we have a great relationship and their financial situation approves. And then they get to go and do what they care about most deeply. I think that's a whole lot better than a wine tasting event um, in my mind. So any other advice you'd give younger, newer advisors getting started today and trying to figure out how to start navigating this journey for their careers? As I reflect Anything good that's come for me has been in the context of some relationship and generally someone better than me or older than me. So I would like, I would like others to experience that same joint work. Like we called it back in the day, being able to team up. So I would, I would pick a firm, not based on its website or its position, even in the community, but by the, the character and quality of the person you could work with, find mentors and glue yourself to them and help them and serve them, put them first. And, and that will carry, that would be my advice. Find good people who are doing good things for good reasons. I think that is otherwise more tempting for making decisions about where to get hired or where to work or even what position to take. All of those other things are detours. So what, what comes next for you? Mm. I would say we're, doing more of what we're doing and being able to do it at a less sprint pace, as you were just saying, and then finding the right next few people to join with us on, on our mission. Um, it's that simple. It's continuing the deliverables and continuing the emphasis on our relationships and having a few more to join in. We're on mission and we want the right people to do it with. It's people. So. As we wrap up, this is a podcast about success, and uh, just one of the big themes that always comes up is the word success means very different things to different people. And so you're on this wonderful growth trajectory with the business with you know, $250 million in three years, attracting very high-value clients as a, as a boutique firm. So the business is going very well. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. It really is what matters. I have the classic uh, faith, family, and friends. I, 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 whether it's um, spirituality or even science, the evidence is clear. People who are happy and fulfilled are those who have high quality, deep relationships. And it goes back to that Dunbar's number you and I were speaking about. Yeah. So the the older I get, the more I realize there's no better investment than relationship. I was just listening to a Brene Brown podcast with an, a guest, and he's he's the author of a book, uh, Leadership is Relationship. And 
there's so many podcasts and books and Arthur Brooks from Harvard and Robert Waldinger, the researcher on, on human development. And, and the answer is clear for me, it's faith um, that, that God is real and that I can have a relationship with him through, through Jesus. For me, that's central and, and ends up leading, but even that that's relationship. And so whether it's faith or science or sociology or psychology, my best moments, the best moments of any of us is in the context of close, intimate, vulnerable relationships. So with my wife, my kids, my colleagues, and trying to make room in Dunbar's number for my clients, trying to not let the client yep. load get so big that it exceeds yep. Dunbar's number. So the quality of the relationship, if I'm investing in that, then I'm in alignment with what I really believe. And I've found that's when I'm feeling the most success. Amen. Amen. Mm. I love mm. it. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Um, thank you for inviting me. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.